Welcome to Radio Read Along, a podcast for the whole family, featuring dramatic, word-for-word readings of classic stories for all ages. In today's episode, Megan Andrews reads chapters 1 and 2 of Peter Pan by J.M. Barrie. You may follow along in your own copy of the story, or sit back, relax, and let your mind's eye do the work. Chapter 1. Peter Breaks Through All children, except one, grow up. They soon know that they will grow up, and the way Wendy knew was this. One day, when she was two years old, she was playing in a garden, and she plucked another flower and ran with it to her mother. I suppose she must have looked rather delightful, for Mrs. Darling put her hand to her heart and cried, Oh! Why can't you remain like this forever? This was all that passed between them on the subject, but henceforth Wendy knew that she must grow up. You always know after you are two. Two is the beginning of the end. Of course, they lived at fourteen, and until Wendy came, her mother was the chief one. She was a lovely lady, with a romantic mind and such a sweet, mocking mouth. Her romantic mind was like the tiny boxes, one within the other, that come from the puzzling east. However many you discover, there is always one more. And her sweet mocking mouth had one kiss on it that Wendy could never get, though there it was, perfectly conspicuous, in the right-hand corner. The way Mr. Darling won her was this. The many gentlemen who had been boys when she was a girl discovered simultaneously that they loved her and they all ran to her house to propose to her, except Mr. Darling, who took a cab and nipped in first, and so he got her. He got all of her, except the innermost box and the kiss. He never knew about the box, and in time he gave up trying for the kiss. Wendy thought Napoleon could have got it, but I can picture him trying and then going off in a passion, slamming the door. Mr. Darling used to boast to Wendy that her mother not only loved him, but respected him. He was one of those deep ones who know about stocks and shares. Of course, no one really knows, but he quite seemed to know, and he often said stocks were up and shares were down, in a way that would have made any woman respect him. Mrs. Darling was married in white, and at first she kept the books perfectly, almost gleefully as if it were a game. Not so much as a Brussels sprout was missing. But by and by, whole cauliflowers dropped out, and instead of them, there were pictures of babies without faces. She drew them when she should have been totting up. They were Mrs. Darling's guesses. Wendy came first, then John, then Michael. For a week or two after Wendy came, it was doubtful whether they would be able to keep her as she was another mouth to feed. Mr. Darling was frightfully proud of her, but he was very honorable, and he sat on the edge of Mrs. Darling's bed, holding her hand and calculating expenses while she looked at him imploringly. She wanted to risk it, come what might, but that was not his way. His way was with a pencil and a piece of paper, and if she confused him with suggestions, he had to begin at the beginning again. Now don't interrupt, he would beg of her. I have one pound seventeen here and two and six at the office. I can cut off my coffee at the office, say ten shillings, making two nine and six, with your eighteen and three makes three nine seven, with five not, not in my checkbook makes eight nine seven. Who is that moving? 
897, dot and carry seven, don't speak my own, and the pound you lent to that man who came to the door, quiet child, dot and carry, child, there you've done it, did I say 997, yes, I said 997, the question is, can we try it for a year on 997? Of course we can, George, she cried, but she was prejudiced in Wendy's favor, and he was really the grander character of the two. Remember Mumps, he warned her almost threateningly, and off he went again. Mumps one pound. That's what I have put down, but I dare say it will be more like thirteen shillings. Don't speak. Measles one five. German measles half a guinea, perhaps two fifteen six. Oh, don't waggle your finger. Whooping cough, say fifteen shillings. And so on it went, and it added up differently each time. But at last, Wendy just got through, with mumps reduced to twelve six, and two kinds of measles treated as one. There was the same excitement over John, and Michael had an even narrower squeak, but both were kept, and soon you might have seen the three of them going in a row to Miss Folsom's kindergarten school, accompanied by their nurse. Mrs. Darling loved to have everything just so, and Mr. Darling had a passion for being exactly like his neighbors, so, of course, they had a nurse. As they were poor, Owing to the amount of milk the children drank, this nurse was a prim Newfoundland dog called Nana, who had belonged to no one in particular until the Darlings engaged her. She had always thought children important, however, and the Darlings had become acquainted with her in Kensington Gardens, where she spent most of her spare time peeping into perambulators and was much hated by careless nursemaids whom she followed to their homes and complained of to their mistresses. She proved to be quite a treasure of a nurse. How thorough she was at bath time, and up at any moment of the night if one of her charges made the slightest cry. Of course, her kennel was in the nursery. She had a genius for knowing when a cough is a thing to have no patience with, and when it needs stocking around your throat. She believed to her last day in old-fashioned remedies like rhubarb leaf, and made sounds of contempt over all this newfangled talk about germs and so on. It was a lesson in propriety to see her escorting the children to school, walking sedately by their side when they were well-behaved, and butting them back into line if they strayed. On John's footer days, she never once forgot his sweater, and she usually carried an umbrella in her mouth in case of rain. There was a room in the basement of Miss Folsom's school where the nurses wait. They sat on forms while Nana lay on the floor, but that was the only difference. They affected to ignore her, as of an inferior social status to themselves, and she despised their light talk. She resented visits to the nursery from Mrs. Darling's friends, but if they did come, she first whipped off Michael's pinafore and put him into the one with blue braiding and smoothed out Wendy and made a dash at John's hair. No nursery could possibly have been conducted more correctly, and Mr. Darling knew it. Yet he sometimes wondered uneasily whether the neighbors talked. He had his position in the city to consider. Nana also troubled him in another way. He had sometimes a feeling that she did not admire him. "'I know she admires you tremendously, George,' Mrs. Darling would assure him, and then she would sign to the children to be specially nice to father. Lovely dances followed in which the only other servant, Liza, was sometimes allowed to join. Such a midget she looked in her long skirt and maid's cap, though she had sworn, when engaged, that she would never see ten again.' The gaiety of those romps, and gayest of all was Mrs. Darling, who would pirouette so wildly that all you could see of her was the kiss, 
and then, if you had dashed at her, you might have got it. There never was a simpler, happier family until the coming of Peter Pan. Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. It is the nightly custom of every good mother, after her children are asleep, to rummage in their minds and put things straight for next morning, repackaging into their proper places the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this, and you would find it very interesting to watch her. It's quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humorously over some of your contents, wondering where on earth you had picked this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, pressing this to her cheek as if it were as nice as a kitten and hurriedly stowing that out of sight. When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions with which you went to bed have been folded up small and placed at the bottom of your mind, and on the top, beautifully aired, are spread out your prettier thoughts, ready for you to put on. I don't know whether you have ever seen a map of a person's mind. Doctors sometimes draw maps of other parts of you, and your own map can become intensely interesting, but catch them trying to draw a map of a child's mind, which is not only confused, but keeps going round all the time. There are zigzag lines on it, just like your temperature on a card, and these are probably roads on the island, for the Neverland is always, more or less, an island, with astonishing splashes of color here and there and coral reefs, and rakish-looking craft in the offing, and savages and lonely lairs, and gnomes, who are mostly tailors, and caves through which a river runs, and princes with six elder brothers, and a hut fast going to decay, and one very small old lady with a hooked nose. It would be an easy map if that were all, but there is also first day at school, religion, fathers, the round pond, needlework, murders, hangings, verbs that take the dative, chocolate pudding day, getting into braces, say 93 threepence for pulling out your tooth yourself, and so on. And either these are part of the island, or they are another map showing through, and it is all rather confusing, especially as nothing will stand still. Of course, the Neverlands vary a good deal. John's, for instance, had a lagoon with flamingos flying over it at which John was shooting while Michael, who was very small, had a flamingo with lagoons flying over it. John lived in a boat turned upside down on the sands, Michael in a wigwam, Wendy in a house of leaves deftly sewn together. John had no friends. Michael had friends at night. Wendy had a pet wolf forsaken by its parents. But on the whole, the Neverlands have a family resemblance and if they stood still in a row, you could say of them that they have each other's nose, and so forth. On these magic shores, children at play are forever beaching their coracles. We too have been there. We can still hear the sound of the surf, though we shall land no more. Of all delectable islands, the Neverland is the snuggest and most compact. Not large and sprawly, you know, with tedious distances between one adventure and another, but nicely crammed. When you play at it by day with the chairs and the tablecloth, it is not in the least alarming. But in the two minutes before you go to sleep, it becomes very real. That is why there are night lights. Occasionally, in her travels through her children's minds, Mrs. Darling found things she could not understand. 
and of these, quite the most perplexing, was the word Peter. She knew of no Peter, and yet he was here and there in John and Michael's minds, while Wendy's began to be scrawled all over with him. The name stood out in bolder letters than any of the other words, and as Mrs. Darling gazed, she felt that it had an oddly cocky appearance. Yes, he is rather cocky, Wendy admitted with regret. Her mother had been questioning her. But who is he, my pet? He's Peter Pan, you know, mother. At first, Mrs. Darling did not know, but after thinking back into her childhood, she just remembered a Peter Pan who was said to live with the fairies. There were odd stories about him, as that when children died, he went part of the way with them, so that they should not be frightened. She had believed in him at the time, but now that she was married and full of sense, she quite doubted whether there was any such person. Besides, she said to Wendy, he would be grown up by this time. Oh, no, he isn't grown up, Wendy assured her confidently, and he's just my size. She meant that he was her size in both mind and body. She didn't know how she knew, she just knew it. Mrs. Darling consulted Mr. Darling, but he smiled, poo-poo. Mark my words, he said, it's some nonsense Nana has been putting into their heads. Just the sort of idea a dog would have. Leave it alone and it will blow over. But it would not blow over, and soon the troublesome boy gave Mrs. Darling quite a shock. Children have the strangest adventures without being troubled by them. For instance, they may remember to mention, a week after the event happened, that when they were in the wood, they had met their dead father and had a game with him. It was in this casual way that Wendy, one morning, made a disquieting revelation. Some leaves of a tree had been found on the nursery floor, which certainly were not there when the children went to bed, and Mrs. Darling was puzzling over them when Wendy said with a tolerant smile, I do believe it's Peter again. Whatever do you mean, Wendy? It is so naughty of him not to wipe his feet, Wendy said, sighing. She was a tidy child. She explained in quite a matter-of-fact way that she thought Peter sometimes came to the nursery in the night and sat on the foot of her bed and played on his pipes to her. Unfortunately, she never woke, so she didn't know how she knew. She just knew. Oh, what nonsense you talk, precious. No one can get into the house without knocking. I think he comes in by the window, she said. My love, it's three floors up. Were not the leaves at the foot of the window, mother? It was quite true. The leaves had been found very near the window. Mrs. Darling did not know what to think, for it all seemed so natural to Wendy that you could not dismiss it by saying she had been dreaming. My child, the mother cried, why did you not tell me of this before? I forgot, said Wendy lightly. She was in a hurry to get her breakfast. Oh, surely she must have been dreaming. But on the other hand, there were the leaves. Mrs. Darling examined them carefully. They were skeleton leaves, but she was sure they did not come up from any tree that grew in England. She crawled about the floor, peering at it with a candle for marks of a strange foot. She rattled the poker up the chimney and tapped the walls. She let down a tape from the window to the pavement, and it was a sheer drop of thirty feet without so much as a spout to climb up by. Certainly, Wendy had been dreaming. But Wendy had not been dreaming, as the very next night showed, the night on which the extraordinary adventures of these children may be said to have begun. 
On the night we speak of, all the children were once more in bed. It happened to be Nana's evening off, and Mrs. Darling had bathed them and sung to them till one by one they had let go of her hand and slipped away into the land of sleep. All were looking so safe and cozy that she smiled at her fears now and sat down tranquilly by the fire to sew. It was something from Michael, who, on his birthday, was getting into shirts. The fire was warm, however, and the nursery dimly lit by three nightlights, and presently the sewing lay on Mrs. Darling's lap. Then her head nodded, oh, so gracefully. She was asleep. Look at the four of them, Wendy and Michael over there, John here, and Mrs. Darling by the fire. There should have been a fourth nightlight. While she slept, she had a dream. She dreamt that the Neverland had come too near, and that a strange boy had broken through from it. He did not alarm her, for she thought she'd seen him before, in the faces of many women who have no children. Perhaps he's to be found in the faces of some mothers also, but in her dream he had rent the film that obscures the Neverland, and she saw Wendy and John and Michael peeping through the gap. The dream by itself would have been a trifle, but while she was dreaming, the window of the nursery blew open, and a boy did drop on the floor. He was accompanied by a strange light, no bigger than your fist, which darted about the room like a living thing, and I think it must have been this light that wakened Mrs. Darling. She started up with a cry, and saw the boy, and somehow she knew at once that he was Peter Pan. If you or I, or Wendy had been there, we should have seen that he was very like Mrs. Darling's kiss. He was a lovely boy, clad in skeleton leaves and the juices that ooze out of trees, but the most entrancing thing about him was that he had all his first teeth. When he saw she was a grown-up, he gnashed the little pearls at her. Chapter 2 The Shadow Mrs. Darling screamed, and as if in answer to a bell, the door opened, and Nana entered, returned from her evening out. She growled and sprang at the boy, who leapt lightly through the window. Again Mrs. Darling screamed, this time in distress for him, for she thought he was killed, and she ran down into the street to look for his little body. But it was not there, and she looked up, and in the black night she could see nothing but what she thought was a shooting star. She returned to the nursery and found Nana with something in her mouth, which proved to be the boy's shadow. As he leapt at the window, Nana had closed it quickly. Too late to catch him, but his shadow had not had time to get out. Slam went the window and snapped it off. You may be sure, Mrs. Darling examined the shadow carefully, but it was quite the ordinary kind. Nana had no doubt of what was the best thing to do with this shadow, she hung it out the window, meaning, He's sure to come back for it. Let us put it where he can get it easily without disturbing the children. But, unfortunately, Mrs. Darling could not leave it hanging out the window. It looked so like the washing and lowered the whole tone of the house. She thought of showing it to Mr. Darling, but he was totting up winter greatcoats for John and Michael, with a wet towel around his head to keep his brain clear, and it seemed a shame to trouble him. Besides, she knew exactly what he would say. It all comes of having a dog for a nurse. She decided to roll the shadow up and put it away carefully in a drawer until a fitting opportunity came for telling her husband. Ah, me. 
The opportunity came a week later, on that never-to-be-forgotten Friday. Of course it was a Friday. I ought to have been careful, especially careful on a Friday, she used to say afterwards to her husband, while perhaps Nana was on the other side of her, holding her hand. No, no, Mr. Darling always said. I am responsible for it all. I, George Darling, did it. Mea culpa, mea culpa. He had had a classical education. They sat thus night after night, recalling that fatal Friday, till every detail of it was stamped on their brains and came through on the other side like the faces on a bad coinage. If only I had not accepted that invitation to dine at twenty-seven, Mrs. Darling said. If only I had not poured my medicine into Nana's bowl, said Mr. Darling. If only I'd pretended to like the medicine, was what Nana's wet eyes said. My liking for parties, George. My fatal gift of humor, dearest. My touchiness about trifles, dear master and mistress. Then one or more of them would break down altogether. Nana, at the thought, It's true, it's true, they ought never to have a dog for a nurse. Many a time it was Mr. Darling who put the handkerchief to Nana's eyes. That fiend, Mr. Darling would cry, and Nana's bark was the echo of it. But Mrs. Darling never upbraided Peter. There was something in the right-hand corner of her mouth that wanted her not to call Peter names. They would sit there in the empty nursery, recalling fondly every smallest detail of that dreadful evening. It had begun so uneventfully, so precisely like a hundred other evenings, with Nana putting on the water for Michael's bath and carrying him to it on her back. "'I won't go to bed!' he had shouted, like one who still believed that he had the last word on the subject. "'I won't, I won't! Nana, it isn't six o'clock yet! Oh dear, oh dear, I shan't love you any more, Nana! I tell you I won't be bathed, I won't! I won't!' Then Mrs. Darling had come in, wearing her white evening gown. She had dressed early, because Wendy so loved to see her in her evening gown, with the necklace George had given her. She was wearing Wendy's bracelet on her arm. She had asked for the loan of it. Wendy loved to lend her bracelet to her mother. She had found her two older children playing at being herself and father, on the occasion of Wendy's birth, and John was saying, "'I'm happy to inform you, Mrs. Darling, that you are now a mother.' in just such a tone as Mr. Darling himself may have used on the real occasion. Wendy danced with joy, just as the real Mrs. Darling must have done. Then John was born, with the extra pomp that he conceived due to the birth of a male. And Michael came from his bath to ask to be born also, but John said brutally that they did not want any more. Michael nearly cried. "'Nobody wants me,' he said." And, of course, the lady in the evening dress could not stand that. "'I do,' she said. "'I so want a third child.' "'Boy or girl?' asked Michael, not too hopefully. "'Boy.' Then he'd leapt into her arms. Such a little thing for Mr. and Mrs. Darling and Nana to recall now, but not so little if that was to be Michael's last night in the nursery. They went on with their recollections. It was then that I rushed in like a tornado, wasn't it? Mr. Darling would say, scorning himself. And indeed, he had been like a tornado. Perhaps there was some excuse for him. He too had been dressing for the party, and all had gone well with him until he came to his tie. 
It is an astounding thing to have to tell, but this man, though he knew about stocks and shares, had no real mastery of his tie. Sometimes the thing yielded to him without a contest, but there were occasions when it would have been better for the house if he had swallowed his pride and used a made-up tie. This was such an occasion. He came rushing into the nursery with the crumpled little brute of a tie in his hand. Why, what's the matter, father dear? Matter, he yelled, he really yelled, this tie will not tie. He became dangerously sarcastic. Not round my neck, round the bedpost? Oh, yes, twenty times have I made it up round the bedpost, but round my neck? No. Oh, dear, no. Begs to be excused. He thought Mrs. Darling was not sufficiently impressed, and he went on sternly. I warn you of this, mother, that unless this tie is round my neck, we don't go out to dinner tonight. And if I don't go out to dinner tonight, I never go to the office again. And if I don't go out to the office again, you and I starve, and our children will be flung into the streets. Even then, Mrs. Darling was placid. Let me try, dear, she said. And indeed, that was what he had come to ask her to do, and with her nice cool hands she tied his tie for him, while the children stood around to see their fate decided. Some men would have resented her being able to do it so easily, but Mr. Darling had far too fine a nature for that. He thanked her carelessly, at once forgot his rage, and in another moment was dancing round the room with Michael on his back. "'How wildly we romped,' says Mrs. Darling now, recalling it. "'Our last romp,' Mr. Darling groaned. "'Oh, George, do you remember Michael suddenly said to me, "'How did you get to know me, mother?' "'I remember.' They were rather sweet, don't you think, George? And they were ours. Ours! And now they're gone! The romp had ended with the appearance of Nana, and most unluckily, Mr. Darling collided against her, covering his trousers with hairs. They were not only new trousers, but they were the first he had ever had with a braid on them, and he had had to bite his lip to prevent the tears coming. Of course, Mrs. Darling brushed him, but he began to talk again about its being a mistake to have a dog for a nurse. George, Nana is a treasure. No doubt, but I have an uneasy feeling at times that she looks upon the children as puppies. Oh, no, dear one, I feel sure she knows they have souls. I wonder, Mr. Darling said thoughtfully, I wonder. It was an opportunity, his wife felt, for telling him about the boy. At first he pooh-poohed the story but he became thoughtful when she showed him the shadow. "'It's nobody I know,' he said, examining it carefully, "'but it does look like a scoundrel.' "'We were still discussing it, do you remember?' says Mr. Darling, "'when Nana came in with Michael's medicine. "'You will never carry the bottle in your mouth again, Nana, "'and it's all my fault.' Strong man though he was, there is no doubt that he had behaved rather foolishly over the medicine." If he had a weakness, it was for thinking that all his life he had taken medicine boldly. And so now, when Michael dodged the spoon in Nana's mouth, he said reprovingly, Be a man, Michael. Won't! Won't! Michael cried naughtily. Mrs. Darling left the room to get a chocolate for him, and Mr. Darling thought this showed a want of firmness. Mother, don't pamper him, he called after her. Michael, when I was your age, I took medicine without a murmur. I said, thank you, kind parents, for giving me bottles to make me well. He really thought this was true, and Wendy, who was now in her nightgown, 
believed it also, and she said, to encourage Michael, "'That medicine you sometimes take, father, is much nastier, isn't it?' "'Ever so much nastier,' Mr. Darling said bravely. "'And I would take it now as an example to you, Michael, if I hadn't lost the bottle.' He had not exactly lost it. He had climbed in the dead of night to the top of the wardrobe and hidden it there. What he did not know was that the faithful Liza had found it and put it back on his washstand. "'I know where it is, father,' Wendy cried, always glad to be of service. "'I'll bring it!' And she was off before he could stop her. Immediately, his spirits sank in the strangest way. "'Oh, John,' he said, shuddering, "'it's most beastly stuff. It's that nasty, sticky, sweet kind.' "'It'll soon be over, father!' John said cheerily, and then in rushed Wendy with the medicine in a glass. I've been as quick as I could, she panted. Oh, you've been wonderfully quick, her father retorted with a vindictive politeness that was quite thrown away upon her. Michael first, he said doggedly. Father first, said Michael, who was of a suspicious nature. I shall be sick, you know, Mr. Darling said threateningly. Come on, father, said John. Hold your tongue, John, his father rapped out. Wendy was quite puzzled. I thought you took it quite easily, father. That is not the point, he retorted. The point is that there's more in my glass than in Michael's spoon. His proud heart was nearly bursting. And it isn't fair. I would say it, though it were with my last breath, it isn't fair. Father, I am waiting, said Michael coldly. It's all very well to say you're waiting, so am I waiting. Father's a cowardly custard. So are you, cowardly custard. I'm not frightened. Well, neither am I frightened. Well, then take it. Well, then you take it. Wendy had a splendid idea. Why not both take it at the same time? Certainly, said Mr. Darling. Are you ready, Michael? Wendy gave the words, one, two, three, and Michael took his medicine, but Mr. Darling slipped his behind his back. There was a yell of rage from Michael, and, Oh, father! Wendy exclaimed. What do you mean by, Oh, father! Mr. Darling demanded. Stop that row, Michael! I meant to take mine, but I... I missed it! It was dreadful the way all the three were looking at him, just as if they did not admire him. Look here, all of you, he said threateningly, as soon as Nana had gone into the bathroom. I have just thought of a splendid joke. I shall pour my medicine into Nana's bowl, and she will drink it, thinking it's milk. It was the color of milk, but the children did not have their father's sense of humor, and they looked at him reproachfully as he poured the medicine into Nana's bowl. What fun, he said, doubtfully, and they did not dare expose him when Mrs. Darling and Nana returned. Nana, good dog, he said, patting her. I've put a little milk into your bowl, Nana. Nana wagged her tail ran to the medicine and began lapping it. Then, she gave Mr. Darling such a look, not an angry look, she showed him the great red tear that makes us so sorry for noble dogs and crept into her kennel. Mr. Darling was frightfully ashamed of himself, but he would not give in. In a horrid silence, Mrs. Darling smelt the bowl. "'Oh, George,' she said, "'it's your medicine!' It was only a joke, he roared, while she comforted her boys, and Wendy hugged Nana. Much good, he said bitterly, my wearing myself to the bone, trying to be funny in this house. 
and still Wendy hugged Nana. That's right, he shouted. Coddle her. Nobody coddles me. Oh, dear, no, I'm only the breadwinner. Why should I be coddled? Why, why, why? George, Mrs. Darling entreated him. Not so loud. The servants will hear you. Somehow, they'd got into the way of calling Liza the servants. Let them, he answered recklessly. Bring in the whole world. But I refuse to allow that dog to lord it in my nursery for an hour longer. The children wept, and Nana ran to him beseechingly, but he waved her back. He felt he was a strong man again. In vain, in vain, he cried. The proper place for you is the yard, and there you go to be tied up this instant. George, George, Mrs. Darling whispered. Remember what I told you about that boy. Alas, he would not listen. He was determined to show who was master in that house, and when commands would not draw Nana from the kennel, he lured her out of it with honeyed words, and seizing her roughly, dragged her from the nursery. He was ashamed of himself, and yet he did it. It was all owing to his too affectionate nature, which craved for admiration. When he had tied her back up in the yard, the wretched father went and sat in the passage with his knuckles to his eyes. In the meantime, Mrs. Darling had put the children to bed in unwanted silence and lit their nightlights. They could hear Nana barking, and John whimpered, It's because he's chaining her up in the yard. But Wendy was wiser. That's not Nana's unhappy bark, she said, little guessing what was about to happen. That's her bark when she smells danger. Danger? Are you sure, Wendy? Oh, yes. Mrs. Darling quivered and went to the window. It was securely fastened. She looked out, and the night was peppered with stars. They were crowding round the house as if curious to see what was to take place there. But she did not notice this, nor that one or two of the smaller ones winked at her. Yet a nameless fear clutched at her heart and made her cry, Oh, how I wish that I wasn't going to a party tonight. Even Michael, already half asleep, knew that she was perturbed, and he asked, can anything arm us, mother, after the night lights are lit? Nothing, precious, she said. They are the eyes a mother leaves behind her to guard her children. She went from bed to bed, singing enchantments over them, and little Michael flung his arms around her. Oh, mother, he cried, I'm glad of you. They were the last words she was to hear from him for a long time. Number 27 was only a few yards distant, but there had been a slight fall of snow, and father and mother darling picked their way over it deftly not to soil their shoes. They were already the only persons in the street, and all the stars were watching them. Stars are beautiful, but they may not take an active part in anything. They may just look on forever. It is a punishment put on them for something they did so long ago that no star now knows what it was. So the older ones have become glassy-eyed and seldom speak, Winking is a star language. But the little ones still wonder. They are not really friendly to Peter, who had a mischievous way of stealing up behind them and trying to blow them out. But they are so fond of fun that they were on his side tonight and anxious to get the grown-ups out of the way. So, as soon as the door of 27 closed on Mr. and Mrs. Darling, there was a commotion in the firmament, and the smallest of all the stars in the Milky Way screamed out, now, Peter! 
Radio Read Along is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, featuring weekly episodes from the world's best stories. Want to listen ahead? Find this entire novel inside the Pelican Society at www.pelicansociety.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>